serve you as well as it used to, but uh, you might remember last Easter when the, we did these cardboard testimonies. I'm so glad we're doing it again this year because it was really a very powerful moment. As you remember, people would uh, uh, put an incident, you know, on the front of the piece of cardboard, turn it over, and talk about the way that God uh, ministered in their life. And so when we sing the song, He Leadeth Me, I'd like to really encourage you to just think, like in this past year, how has God actually led you? And uh, I hope that you'd be willing to kind of step up. Uh, one of the connection card responses this morning is, hey, I'd be willing to uh, do a cardboard testimony this Easter. We're looking for at least 30 people uh, to come forward and say, I'd be happy to take a piece of cardboard, write an incident on the front, and uh, flip it over and explain how God met that need in my life. So uh, I would just encourage you to uh, participate in that this year. It's an encouragement to everybody. I don't know also if you remember, but uh, just about a year ago, right at this time, a year ago, uh, all across the country there were billboards uh, that went up. And uh, the billboards announced that Judgment Day was coming onto the world May 21st, 2011. Perhaps you remember that. And uh, Jesus was going to return, the, the world was going to be judged by God. And uh, if you recall, I remember... Uh, you know, kind of watching TV at that time, and there were a number of things that happened. Uh, news commentators uh, were having a field day with Harold Camping, if you recall, and uh, they would interview him, make comments, and so on and so forth. Uh, talk show hosts made jokes, you know, uh, unending jokes about the end of the world coming and Judgment Day and so forth. I remember uh, bar owners actually hosting, uh, you know, last day parties at their bar. And uh, it just, uh, you know what happened, right? The day came, nothing happened, the day went. And uh, I felt uh, like once again, uh, the world became a little bit more desensitized to the reality that the God of the universe is someday going to come and judge this world, is someday going to come and put an end to evil and sin. And, and, and it's, there is a judgment day that is coming. And uh, I, I felt like, you know, if only we would learn to not say more than Scripture says and not to say less than Scripture says. And the Bible says nobody knows the day or the hour, but the Bible's very definite that there is a day of judgment that's coming. Uh, God's revelation of himself, you know, is crystal clear in the Bible. Uh, he's perfect. He's full of goodness. He's absolute pure righteousness. He is holy holy, holy. And uh, he's the creator of all things, including you and me. And because he's the creator of us, he has the right to rule over us. Would you agree? He's the creator. He made us. And because he's our creator, he has the right to rule over us. And I want to suggest to you this morning, there are at least three different dimensions of this rulership that God has over our lives. Uh, the first is that because God is our ruler, uh, he, has, uh, he has the only right to control. He's the only one who has the right to be in control. All right, let me just, uh, I'm going to read just one passage of Scripture for each of these three kind of dimensions of his rulership over people. Um, I'm reading from Daniel. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. 
He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what do you think you're doing? He, has the, he's, he alone has the right to be in control. One of the reasons that God can uh, uh, put prophecy in the Bible and tell us what's going to happen in the future is because he has the power, he's in control, he leads us, and he is going to see to it that things happen the way he says. He's in control. A, a second dimension of God, because of his creatorship having rule over us, is that he alone is the judge of what's right and wrong. He alone is the judge. He has the right to judge. And uh, again, another, just a quick uh, passage of scripture from James chapter 4. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? There's only one judge. God is the creator of everything, and because he's the creator of everything, he alone has the right to judge. And then third, I would suggest to you uh, that um, because God is the ruler over everything, God alone is deserving of praise. God alone is deserving of all praise. He's the source of all things. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So God created all things, and because he's the creator of all things, he's the ruler over all things, he's in control, he is the judge, and he is worthy of our praise. Every time man, when, when, when God first created man, Satan came into the garden, right, remember? And Satan says to our parents, our original parents, you can be like God. You can be like God. Just eat this fruit and you can be like God. And every time we try to be like God, try to be in control, try to be the judge of what's right and wrong ourselves, and try to garner praise to ourselves instead of channeling praise to him, every time we do that, Romans chapter 1 says, God gets ticked. God's wrath is being revealed against people who are trying to take the creature and put him in the place of the creator. Every time that happens. And so all through Romans chapter 1, we've seen that the wrath of God is being revealed when people try to play God. When people try to take control from God instead of submitting to God's control. When people try to become the judge instead of listening to God being the judge. And when people try to garner praise to the creation rather than the creator. And uh, so in Romans chapter 1, we're, we see how, the reaction of God uh, to this temptation that Satan has put before us. Uh, in Romans chapter 2, where we are this morning, we're focused on the judgment of God. Whenever the creature takes the place of the creator, the judgment of God begins to build up. And uh, that's what Romans chapter 2 is really all about. And the wrath of God begins to get stirred up. But here's the problem. Lots and lots of people don't acknowledge God's ex assessment of the way things are. Lots and lots of people never take time to think about what does God think about where the world's at today. And when we refuse to listen to God's word, when we refuse to listen, we don't realize you know, the gravity of the situation that we're really in. 
And we don't take the prospect of judgment seriously. But everywhere the Bible talks about a day that's coming when the judgment of God will be revealed full thrust. Judgment day, it's called the day of the Lord. Time and time again, in both Old Testament and New Testament, we read this phrase, day of the Lord. I think that lots of people don't pay attention. Chuck Swindoll put it like this. He said, most people think there's three kinds of people. Most people think that there's the really, really, really good people. You know, and there are people like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, you know, and Gandhi and people like that. They're, they're just the really, really good people. And then, of course, there's the really, 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 really bad people like Charles Manson and Adolf Hitler, you know, kind of people. And then there's the 99% of us who live in the middle, who are all just normal, who are all just average. And we tend to think that there's, you know, there's three kinds of people, and we put ourselves, most of us, you know, in that middle group. And we just want to be average. We just want to be normal, you know? And uh, most of us see ourselves as just kind of normal. And in Romans chapter 1, we're with God when he's talking about them. All through, Pastor Chris pointed out last week that all through Romans chapter 1, Paul's talking about them, you know, and how they are going to be judged. They have become futile. They are fools. They are without excuse. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God gave them over, you know. And we think, oh, yeah, he's talking about Manson, and he's talking about Hitler. That's who the they are. And then we get to Romans chapter 2, and it changes to you. God says, like, no, 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 I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. And all of a sudden, it becomes personal. And so in Romans chapter 2, when we pay attention, it's a devastating indictment on mankind. And there's not a one of us who's missing from Romans chapter 2. And he begins to talk about, you know, this judgment that's coming. And uh, just uh, the focus in chapter 2 becomes us. And as, you know, Pastor Chris pointed out last week, as soon as you become the judge of somebody else, you're guilty. And every time I think about that concept, I, I think about the story of King David in the Old Testament. You remember the story of King David? A man after God's own heart, Israel's greatest king. You remember he has an affair, right? Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He kills, puts uh, her uh, husband, Uriah, on the front lines, has him wiped out, cover up the pregnancy, the whole thing, right? Then he doesn't say anything for a while. Just kind of puts that under the rug. And then all of a sudden, God sends a guy by the name of Nathan to David one day. Remember this? And Nathan comes to David, and he says, Hey, King David, he says, uh, I got this little town over here, and there's two guys in this town I have to tell you about. One of the guys is really rich, and one of the guys is really, really poor. And the rich guy, he's got all kinds of cattle, he's got all kinds of sheep and stuff, and the poor guy, he's just got one little ewe lamb. And Nathan says, that lamb is like a pet to him. In fact, he says, in the Bible it says, it's like a daughter to him. And so a traveler, a friend of the rich guy's comes, and the rich guy needs to make a meal for his friend, and he goes to the poor guy and he whips this little lamb out of his family, slaughters it, and makes a meal out of it for his friend. And David, the king, goes ballistic. David's like, he should die. He's like, he needs to repay for that lamb four times over. And he's just going off, you know. And Nathan looks him in the eye. Remember this? Such a dramatic moment. He says, you're the man. You're the man. You're the king. You've got everything. 
and you go and steal this guy's wife and then take his life? You're the man. Inasmuch as you judge somebody else, Paul says here in Romans, you're guilty. And I always think that story of David is such an example of that. Here's David going absolutely ballistic on somebody who killed a lamb. When David himself killed a man and stole somebody's wife. And that's how blind we are. And so every time we make a judgment about somebody else, you know, I always think that as soon as you point this finger right, there's three fingers pointing back at you. And that's what Paul is saying here in chapter 2. Don't get too excited about pointing at the Charles Mansons and the Adolf Hitlers. This is really about you. It's about all of us. And uh, this whole section of Romans, you know, sort of builds to a crescendo in Romans chapter 3 where Paul finally says in the 23rd verse, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God is building a case in the first part of Romans against all of mankind and uh, talking to us about this judgment that's coming forward. And uh, God's judgment will fall on all people. Why? Because God's standard is himself. He made us in his image. He made us to be like him. And none of us are. We are so far fallen from what he created us to be. Uh, and, and so God's judgment falls on all of us. And uh, the whole world stands guilty before God. But if we don't listen, here's what we do. Verse 4. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Are you going to be like David and think that as long as God doesn't come and strike you dead, that you can slip this stuff under the rug and God doesn't notice and you're going to reason to yourself that since nothing really bad is happening to me, I don't really have to deal with the realities that God is convicting me of and that I can just go on and pretend like nothing's going to happen. And how often do we think, you know, like this, that God tolerates our sin, he lets it run its course, but why does he do that? He's looking for repentance. He's looking for that time when we come to our senses and we begin to agree with his judgment. And we repent, we change, uh, we grow, you know, we respond to his initiatives. God is kind, he's gentle, this passage says. God, the Bible says, is slow to anger. But we think, oh, I must be okay. It must not be any big deal to God. Because look, he's still blessing me in my life. I'm still able to go forward even though I've sinned against the God of the universe, you know? Uh, what if God is just being patient, giving you a second chance to repent, giving you a chance to turn to him, a chance to change? But if you refuse to repent, if you refuse to submit, if you refuse to yield to God's word, here's what you're doing, verse 5, the next verse. But because of your stubbornness and because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. If we refuse to deal with God, if we refuse to acknowledge God's assessment of our lives, if we just pretend like everything's fine and okay and I'm just part of that 99% of normal people in the middle, and we ignore God's assessment of the gravity of our situation before him. Uh, and if we're stubborn and if we refuse to turn, 
storing up wrath. Imagine. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. I mean, there's nothing worse than falling into the hands of an angry God, right? I mean, we can't even imagine. Jesus said that this day of the Lord, when it comes, will be the worst thing that's ever happened in all the history of mankind. It's going to be a frightening experience. And so, uh, the day of God's wrath, he talks about here. You see it? Uh, storing up God's anger and God's wrath uh, until the day of God's wrath. Uh, again, all through the scriptures, uh, in verse 16, it's the same thing in here in Romans chapter 2. All this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So all through the scriptures, there's this day that the Bible talks about called the day of the Lord, uh, both in the Old and New Testament. And uh, it just seems to me that it's just common sense to know that we are all closer to this day than we've ever been before. I mean, God set this day thousands of years ago. There's a day that's coming, a day of judgment, and uh, it, we're, we're closer to it than ever before, right? I mean, that's just common sense. I believe that on the day that Jesus returns, uh, that same day, the judgment of God will begin. Two things will happen on the day that Jesus returns. Uh, one is, the Bible says, that the church, the true church, the people who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be raptured or taken out of the world. Uh, Paul talks about it in Thessalonians, the clearest. Uh, but, uh, and the second thing that will happen is that the judgment of God will begin to fall on the world, everybody else that's left. And that's the promise, because God has said that once you trust Christ, you know, you're no longer in, in, in the sights of God's wrath. Because that wrath that you deserve and I deserve took place on the cross, on Jesus instead of us. And uh, what a glorious day. That's when Christ returns. And so uh, there, all the Gospels kind of talk about this. In Luke chapter 17, just let me read a, a verse or two. It says, For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. The Bible says that, you know, surrounding this day, the sun won't shine, the moon will fall, the stars will fall. There's going to be some cosmic disturbance that happens. And when Christ comes, everybody will know it. Jesus is saying, listen, there's always going to be people who are saying, I'm the Christ, come and follow me. And don't ever go after any of those people. Jesus says, when I come, you will know it because the sky will be dark and I will come like lightning across this black background and the whole world will know it when I come. But then he says this in Luke chapter 17, verse uh, 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. If you go back to Genesis chapter 7, you'll see that the same day that Noah and his family got shut into the ark is the day that it started to rain. The same day. The same day that the church is taken out of the world is the day that the wrath of God will begin to come upon the world. Revelation spells this all out, and I think, pretty clearly. And it goes on. Uh, some of us guys, you know, get together on Thursday morning. We're studying Genesis, great study, men's Bible study, 6 o'clock Thursday morning. And we were just uh, not too long ago talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, Jesus goes on, he says, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all on the same day. 
On the same day that the Lord comes back, two things happen. The church is taken out of the world, the true church. Not the organization of church, but the people who have put their trust in Christ. And the judgment of God begins to come, as described in the book of Revelation. And so I just think this is such a serious matter. It's all through the scriptures, all the New Testament. There's nothing uh, probably more important to any of us than to be saved from the judgment of God. When we talk about salvation, we talk about being saved, we're talking about being saved from the judgment that we all deserve. Uh, because why? Because God is the creator and because he has the right to rule over us and, and so on. And, uh, and we try and take that, those rights away from him and, and rebel against his rulership in our lives. And there's coming a day when that will end and that'll be over. I came across this verse uh, just uh, this past week and I, I'm not an alarmist and I, I don't want to say that, you know, oh, well, we're right on the edge and all of that kind of thing, but... You know, the thing in Iran and Israel, I mean, that standoff, that could change overnight. And that has a lot of implications. And uh, there's a lot of things the scriptures have to say about Israel. And, and I came across this verse. This is uh, fascinating to me. It's in Jeremiah chapter 16. And uh, Jeremiah is, you know, thousands of years before Jesus. And, uh, and here's what he says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when men will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. There's coming a day when people aren't going to talk about Moses and what the choir sang about, but instead they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave her forefathers. I'm like, wow, is that our day? Have we witnessed a, a, a biblical-style miracle in that God brought his people, Israel, scattered all over the nations of the back into the land to establish them since 1948 as a nation that's recognized and, and the beginning of things playing out that the Bible talks about, you know, from thousands of years ago? And again, not to be an alarmist or anything, just to say that, you know, this judgment on the world is real. This business of having to be accountable to the God who made us, our creator, is very real. But we better get back to Romans chapter 2. Um, and uh, I'd like to just point out how Paul goes on here in verse 6. And you might, uh, this might give you pause because it might be different than what you think, okay? He says, verse 5, right, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, if you're stubborn and you refuse to uh, embrace God's assessment of where we're at, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, here's how it's going to work. Listen to this. God will give to each person according to what he has done. According to what he has done. That's what that day is going to be all about. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, please be clear about this. You know, you've been, uh, most, most of you have been in church and know the Bible well enough to know. Let me be very clear. No one will be saved by their own works. Right? No one will be saved 
by their own works. We're saved by the work of Jesus on the cross for us. However, don't be misunderstood. Our works and our deeds and our choices always reveal what we believe. What we do, what we say, choices we make, always are the product of what we really believe. So once we put our faith in Christ, our whole life changes. And our deeds become different. That's just all through the scriptures. And so it's so important to understand that this judgment will be impartial based on what are we doing? Because that's where God will look. And our deeds matter. You know that the Bible says uh, in James you know, chapter 2, faith without works is what? Dead. So the Bible says two things. Works without faith is dead. And faith without works is dead. Why? Because your works and your faith are always two sides of the same coin. You know, I've uh, often said this, and I love to talk about this, because I, I think that what we believe is the most important part of our life. What we really believe is the most significant part of your life. Because what you believe will influence how you think. And how you think will influence how you feel. And how you think and feel will influence what you do. The choices that you make. It always works that way. So what we believe is fundamental to what we do. When we turn to Christ, we're given a new life. The Bible says we're regenerated. We're given a new spirit. And immediately, the Bible says we are saved from the penalty of sin, which is the wrath of God. As soon as we turn to Christ, we're saved from the penalty of sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's first. Second, uh, over the course of our lifetime, we are saved uh, in, in the process of being saved from the power of sin. We're in the process over the course of our lifetimes of being delivered from the power of sin. We're saved from the penalty. We're in the process of being saved from the power of sin. And, and so, uh, you know, our works demonstrate our faith. People who put faith in Christ get baptized. They develop new values, new desires, new habits. What we do with our money and our time changes. What we talk about changes. Who we serve and what we do changes. And we serve the cause of Christ and so on and so forth. We start to enjoy worship. We start to get to know this God and realize he's worthy of our worship. And we start to enjoy, you know, responding to him and so forth. And then finally, in heaven, we're delivered even from the presence of sin. So we're delivered immediately from the penalty over the course of our lifetime from the power of sin and ultimately from the very presence of sin. Can you imagine what life would be like with no sin on the part of all those other people? Right? Wouldn't it be great to live in heaven and have everybody else be sinless, you know? So as Christians, our works are judged. And uh, if we have the time, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you can write it down, you can read it. Uh, the Christian's works are judged for rewards. What we do is tested by fire, Paul says, in order that God might reward us for how we invested our life before we go to heaven. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you can read it. And it's all good, right? Verse 7 of Romans chapter 2 says, To those who by persistence, and boy, it takes persistence, doesn't it? To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. It's all good. It's all good. But, verse 8, 
The opposite of that is for those who are self-seeking. And I think, here again, we're back to the original thing. Uh, the opposite of God first is me first. And so self-seeking, kind of putting myself first instead of God first, for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, who's the truth? Jesus says, I am the truth. If you reject Christ um, and reject the truth, well, uh, follow evil. There will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now listen, for God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. Now if you think about this, uh, there's no favoritism. The basis is our deeds and our choices. It's objective. Um, Please don't think that somehow you're the exception. I'm sure that when Paul wrote this to the um, Roman church, he was thinking about the Jewish contingent in the Roman church because they thought they were favored by God, right? They thought they had an in with God because they were Jewish. They were God's chosen. And Paul comes and levels that whole thing and says, listen, there's no favor. It's about what your life produces. It's about your works. Because your works always reveal what you really believe. So please don't think that somehow, well, I'm the exception and God will just look the other way. Don't think like King David. That I can get away with this because I'm the king. I'm God's man. And don't wait until judgment day to have the Nathan come and say, you're the man. And be devastated. And so um, God is not partial don't think that somehow you'll be able to talk your way around God on Judgment Day. Some of us are so used to talking our way around everything that we think that when we die and stand before the Lord, we'll be able to talk our way past Him, you know. He doesn't forget. He can't be bribed. And unless your sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, you will be on the receiving end of the judgment of God. And it's a terrible thing. The judgment comes to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Everywhere you read about the day of the Lord, it's this order. It's first the Jewish people, whether it's uh, uh, the judgment or the blessing, and then it's the nations, the rest of the nations. And it's always in that order, all through the Old Testament and so forth, and here, here we have it again. In fact, the tribulation period that's spoken about is called Jacob's trouble. And so when Paul says, you know, God doesn't show favoritism, I think he had the Jewish part of this congregation in mind. And they would be shocked at such an announcement by Paul. But God goes on here to show why this is true and why this judgment falls first on the Jewish people precisely because they had God's word. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. All who sin apart from the law, all who don't have God's word, will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. You see where he's going? You see what the argument is going to be here? 
people who have the law and don't obey it are like twice as guilty, double trouble, as people who don't have it. Paul is like, you Jewish people, you're at a disadvantage because you have a straight word from God. It's like asking the question, you know, how can God be fair in judging people when some people have the rules and some don't? How can that be a fair judgment? How can you judge people on what they do if some people know what they're supposed to do and other people don't? Well, he goes on here. He says, verse 14, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law unto themselves. For even though they don't have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. See what he's saying? He's saying that all people have a remnant of the image of God such that they have a conscience. And written on that conscience, every single person in the world has a sense of right and wrong. It's a leftover from the image of God. It's a fallen, it's mistaken, it's confused, it's, it's, it's been affected by sin. And so, but there is a conscience in every person. And the argument that Paul is making is that there's not one person on the planet who lives up to their own conscience in knowing what's right and wrong and being able to live and do what's right. And the Jewish people, having the rule book, are like in twice as much trouble. And so when the judgment comes, it comes to the Jewish person first because they had God's law. They know beyond their consciences exactly what the requirements of the law are and still don't do it. And so, you know, the law would be a great advantage if you believed it. And if then you would obey it because you believe it. But if you have the law and you know it and you ignore it, you're like in deeper weeds than the person who never read it. Right? You follow the logic that that Paul is using here? The law would be a great advantage, but you need to obey it. So uh, think of the example of um, God's judgment on the Jewish people just over the course of history. Has there been any group of people more persecuted than the Jewish people over the course of history? And just think about that. And God's blessing simply means greater responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. And so all people, Paul's argument is, know that God exists. All people have a remnant of God's image left over in them, a conscience with some sense of right and wrong. And some people even have a clear word from God. And yet all people fail to live up to what they know, uh, including um, the law, including you and me. And this is all pointing again to that great summary statement where all people have sinned and fallen short of what God created us to be. And so God's judgment is just. And uh, the last sentence here, verse 16, uh, all this will take place on the day, again, the day when God will judge men's secrets. Please don't think that because this judgment hasn't fallen yet that we can get away without dealing with the God who, uh, who created us and who loves us. God's judgment is just. It's based on objective deeds we either do or don't do. And uh, which can only be, uh, our deeds can only be delivered from our own self-seeking to God-seeking through the power of the gospel. And so by a gospel-centric life, we're talking about somebody who clings to the cross and to Christ. 
I was thinking this week about um, how, how many times uh, something will happen in somebody's life, and uh, we'll call it a defining moment. Something can happen in your childhood, some tragedy can happen, some choice that you make that you know, sets uh, your life on a course of uh, direction, and, and it becomes like a defining moment. And I, I talk to people who, you know, 30 years later, that defining moment is still dictating to them how they're acting and the choices they're making. And it occurred to me that a gospel-centric life is somebody who chooses to make the defining moment of their life the moment that they embrace Jesus Christ. And that the gospel and that transaction, that transition uh, of putting our faith in Christ and his substitute uh, on, on the cross in our place in order that we might del- be delivered from the wrath of God becomes the defining moment in their life. And when that happens, there is an increasing freedom as we progress through life because that's the defining moment of my identity. And we choose it. Or we choose some other defining moment that's dictating our lives. And it's the freedom that God wants to give us uh, through the good news of the gospel, a gospel-centric life. Don't make the mistake that David made thinking that he could keep secrets from God. And don't be deceived by, uh, you know, uh, what, what people say. Well, everybody's doing it, right? Uh, or uh, we have these statements, you know, well, nobody's perfect, and God knows that, so we don't have to worry about you know, or... Uh, you know, God is just being patient, and he will keep being patient. You know, God's judgment is no laughing matter. It'll be a terrible day when the day of the Lord actually arrives. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, and you and I deserve it. However, right now, while there is still time, God is actually offering us a plea deal. God is offering all of us a plea deal based on Good Friday and Easter. God is willing to let Jesus be judged in our place so that we might be totally guilt-free before God for all of eternity through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we live in a land of plenty. We uh, were blessed in so many different ways. And it's easy for us to just assume that this judgment that you talk about is for somebody else. It's easy for us to just think, Father, that somehow we're so sophisticated and so educated and so blessed that you surely couldn't be talking about us. It's easy for us as Christians to fall into the same pattern that so many Jewish people fall into, thinking that because we're chosen, we're favored, and that you don't really care about other people, but you care about us, and therefore we're privileged. And then we read in your word here, Father, that uh, you don't show favoritism, that all the people that you created matter to you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand the implications of what is being told to us here in Romans, that the judgment will be on the basis of our deeds. And that if we claim to have faith, but it doesn't make any difference in the way that we think or the choices that we make or the deeds that we do, that that faith is stillborn that it's not able to really save us, but that when we do put our faith in your son Jesus who went to the cross on our behalf, in our place, that there's a whole new life that comes to us and everything changes. We become new creations in Christ. And Father, I pray that those uh, truths might sink home deeply and that you might uh, have freedom to do what you will in, in and through our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. 
Amen.